This is The Guardian. Today, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was shunned by the West after the brutal killing of Jamal Khashoggi. But is all that starting to change? It's been four years since the brutal killing of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, an event that shocked the world. After a fortnight of denials, Saudi Arabia has admitted that the missing journalist Jamal Khashoggi died during his visit to the country's consulate in Istanbul earlier this month. The the word saw, the word saw is a clear referral that they are using a saw to dismember his body right on the spot. CNN can now reveal Jamal Khashoggi's last words. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And one with huge ramifications for one man in particular, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and effective leader of Saudi Arabia. Everywhere he has turned, every move he has made, Khashoggi has loomed large over him. The new CIA assessment finds that Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered the killing. He was shunned by world leaders. We're going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. But in the last few months, as Middle East correspondent Martin Shulov has watched on, it's clear that something has started to change. Well, this is very much a reintroduction of Mohammed bin Salman onto the world stage. It's a moment that he's been waiting for for quite some time, for for up to four years. Thank you, Mr. President. I'm very glad to be in Greece. Uh, The Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is visiting Turkey for the first time. President Biden touched down in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia Friday after a stop... MBS is travelling again, back on the world stage. And this week, the US State Department approved the sale of billions of dollars of weapons to the kingdom. For a young leader in waiting, still learning how the world works, he's re-embraced by the same countries that called him a pariah only a few years ago, might be a powerful lesson with consequences for Saudi Arabia and the world. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the rehabilitation of Mohammed bin Salman. Martin, in the last few weeks, MBS has been making his first visits to Europe since the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. He's also been getting a number of visitors to Saudi Arabia, most notably President Biden in July. Can you talk us through these different visits and which were the most significant? Uh, Boris Johnson visited him in March. Uh, He went to see the Turkish President Erdogan, which was a high-profile visit several months ago. And he's recently arrived in France after a red carpet welcome in Greece. Well, um, Your Highness, it's uh, a real pleasure uh, to be able to welcome you to Athens uh, on uh, your first European trip after COVID. All of these Uh, visits had set the scene for Biden to to swallow some pride and to to take a chance and to go to Riyadh and see if he could reap a political return of his own. We begin with breaking news on the world stage. Just moments ago, President Biden delivering remarks from Saudi Arabia after his controversial meeting with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the alleged... The visit of Joe Biden is clearly the most important event that's happened for Mohammed bin Salman this year. He's longed for the day where the US president would turn up to Riyadh cap in hand on his turf and on his terms. 
And how much did the murder of Jamal Khashoggi overshadow these visits? The Khashoggi assassination was front and centre of the bilateral relationship between Joe Biden and Mohammed bin Salman from the time that Biden was sworn in as president. He made his very first act as president to declare that he would treat uh, MBS as a pariah. Khashoggi was in fact murdered and dismembered, and I believe in the order of the Crown Prince. And I would make it very clear, we were not going to in fact sell more weapons to them. We were going to in fact make them pay the price and make them in fact the pariah that they are. He made it very clear that he would not deal with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, he would instead deal with his father. So when he had to come to MBS and say, uh, let's get together and, and talk about oil and other things, Khashoggi was very much looming there in the background. It was in every meeting. It, it was certainly there at press conferences where American reporters were shouting questions to Mohammed bin Salman about whether he would apologize. Jamal Khashoggi, will you apologize to his family, sir? President Biden, is Saudi Arabia still your At the end of that meeting, Prince Mohammed was able to say to to friends and to to colleagues that he had got Saudi Arabia's swagger back, that he had stared down Joe Biden, that the Khashoggi issue was no longer the issue that it was, and that Saudi Arabia was back on a world stage dealing with the Americans as an equal peer, not in a master-servant relationship. The Greece and French visits were very different. A firm, long handshake and all smiles uh, as uh, Emmanuel Macron welcomes Mohammed bin Salman here at the Elysee Palace. A very different picture from that cold shoulder uh, that France and the West in general had been giving Saudi Arabia over the last few years. Although Khashoggi had featured prominently in the discourse over the last four or five years, it wasn't central to the bilateral relationship as, as Joe Biden had made it to be. So it sounds like four years after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, MBS has managed to, if not rehabilitate his image, at least to move past that that terrible crime. And it's no longer something that, that prevents him from appearing publicly in Europe. I think it's fair to say we're at a point where Khashoggi, which was at the forefront of every conversation whenever it came to Mohammed bin Salman, is still there, but it's something that he can talk past It's not central to every bilateral discussion or every consideration about how to deal with Saudi Arabia. And what's happening in the world that has these countries so willing to re-embrace both Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman? I think there's several factors at work there. One is the passage of time. We've had Ukraine uh, dominate global discourse. We've had an oil crisis which has stemmed from Ukraine, and that has got us to this point where Saudi Arabia has their hands on the, on the oil levers of the world. Now, meanwhile, here in the US, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it just continues to weigh on American wallets. The cost of oil is more than $120 a barrel, resulting in record high gas prices. You know, Saudi Arabia has had this black gold in the ground for the last 80 years or so. It hasn't often had the opportunity to use it with such enormous political leverage. But as Prince Mohammed battles to restore some sense of reputation on a global stage, he finds himself with with this powerful tool. (music) 
Martin, can you take us back a few years and remind us, who is Mohammed bin Salman and how did he come to power? Mohammed bin Salman is an unlikely candidate to be one of the world's most powerful people and the king of Saudi Arabia, which he almost inevitably will be in the next few years. He's the son of one of King Salman's four wives, a distant son too, not one of the sons he sent to Sandhurst in the UK, to Stanford in the US. Yet what he did seem to have is something that his father saw in him at a young age. He was a a charismatic organiser. He did have a natural intelligence to him, and he did have a natural uh, leadership ability that his father did recognise. And he saw in in MBS somebody who he was going to groom. He was put through a, a long series of tests. He was he was made deputy defence minister in his late twenties. He was given enormous power to make significant decisions politically, operationally, a, across the kingdom. Uh, there was a lot of jealousy from his siblings. There was a lot of empowerment from uh, from MBS himself, who did start to see himself as the chosen one. Somebody tapped on the shoulder with a silver sword and sent on this mission to overhaul this uh, sclerotic kingdom, which was so deeply rooted in hardline values. And he was given a mandate to turn that around and make Saudi Arabia relatively outward facing on a global stage. And inside Saudi Arabia, MBS as Crown Prince has been a divisive character. Why is that? Well, the changes that he has started to implement, which took place around five years ago with this Vision 2030 program, by any objective test are significant. Now, his critics will say that these are cosmetic changes around the edges that are just tailored to give Saudi Arabia a a better impression globally. But for anyone who has spent significant time in the kingdom, these changes are nothing less than a cultural revolution. It no longer matters at face value who you sleep with, what you do in your private time, uh, what your ambitions are. You do have some ability to shape your own destiny, and especially if you're a female. In the driver's seat for the first time, this Saudi woman is finally allowed to enter her car without needing a driver, her husband, father, brother or son to drive it for her. For millions of other Saudi women, this will become a reality in the coming weeks and months as the kingdom continues to issue driver's licenses. On the other hand, Saudi Arabia, certainly away from Jeddah and Riyadh, remains a deeply conservative country where for the last 40 odd years, its residents, its tribes, its clans have been embedded in this hardline, ultra-conservative take of Sunni Islam. There are really strict uh, doctrinal interpretations which which limit uh, any ability to enjoy entertainment, to, to dress in anything other than conservative garb. There is deep resentment at Prince Mohammed coming along and saying that uh, this doesn't matter anymore. And Martin, what about dissidents? What about when it comes to people who actually challenge him politically? How does MBS react to that? Anybody who has been perceived as a threat, whether it be politically, creatively, intellectually, has been sidelined. Mohammed um, bin Nayef, the, the former Crown Prince who was taken out by MBS, who, who took his position, has barely left house arrest in the last 
four years. All right, so we begin in Saudi Arabia, where Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has detained some of the most high-profile members of the royal family. And that includes former Crown Prince Mohammed bin Nayef, as well as... It has been a classic purge in the sense that anybody perceived as being a rival to his power base has been jailed, sidelined or exiled. And they've certainly been too scared to talk about their experiences. Martin, you've been covering MBS for a number of years and you've actually met him a few times. What can you tell from those meetings about his character, about the kind of leader that he wants to be? Well, there's no doubt that he's a formidable physical presence. He's a, he's a large man. Uh, he, he's got an imposing charisma. He, he speaks uh, persuasively and uh, consistently about the, the many aspects of his reform agenda. I believe we have also historical uh, opportunities that uh, we're going to finalise a lot of it today, uh, linking the grid of electricity, which we can provide Greece and Southwest Europe through Greece with uh, much cheaper, renewable energy. We have a lot of stuff that's going to be game changer for both, both of countries and also for the whole region. I've been with other powerful figures. Bill Clinton was one of them. He, and he's, he, he also does that, but he reflects energy back. Bill Clinton has this knack of making you feel as though you're you're equally important to him. He can fix a gaze on you and uh, and he can take you into confidence. And for, for several minutes, you're feeling very empowered yourself. But when you sit with Prince Muhammad, it's very different. He's got this charisma that uh, absorbs all of the energy and doesn't really give a lot back. People are very deferential to him in a room, whether it be you know former Western leaders or, or, or his own aides. There isn't a cut and thrust of debate and discussion going on. He's somebody that does intimidate in private and in public. And his rise, at least internationally, came to a kind of grinding stop in the middle of 2018 with the killing of Khashoggi. Now, we know how the world reacted to that, but how did MBS react? Did he think he could survive it? MBS was deeply surprised at the reaction to the killing of Khashoggi. When you heard that people close to you carried out such a grisly murder and that the American government thinks that you ordered it. What did you think? I believe what you mentioned is not correct. There isn't clear information or evidence that someone close to me did something to that effect. There are charges and they're being investigated. But again, you cannot imagine the pain that we suffered, especially as the Saudi government, from a crime such as this one. He has seen that as, a, as an incident which has caused embarrassment to the kingdom, caused him great embarrassment, uh, and he has told people that it's the worst thing to ever happen to him. So he's taken this quite personally. He hasn't seen this as uh, something which was morally wrong, which was ethically wrong, which is politically imbecilic. Uh, he, he has seen this as a, as a personal slur. And in the time that he's been an international pariah, he's had to keep his head down. What's he been doing in the meantime? Well, in the last few years, COVID has certainly given him an opportunity to double down on his domestic projects, and he, he has been doing that. Now, Prince Mohammed has spent a lot of the COVID years on his yacht in the Red Sea, just off the coast of what he plans to be his neon project, this uh, futuristic uh, city on the, on the Red Sea coast. Imagine a traditional city and consolidating its footprint. 
designing to protect and enhance nature. The line will be home to 9 million residents and will be built with a footprint of just 34 square kilometers. And we are designing it to provide a healthier, more sustainable quality of life. Even that project alone, in terms of scale and ambition, is something that is consuming the political energy of, of so many of his aides. He's also pressed ahead with some of his reforms to the way that Saudi society functions. What does that look like on the ground? What have you seen on your trips there? Now, the changes are, are very obvious to see. Every visit I've made to Saudi Arabia in the last five years has, has shown a, an opening up. The last time I arrived in Riyadh, I was picked up at the airport by a female Uber driver uh, wearing a, a tank top and jeans with a long hair flowing, playing Metallica's Enter Sandman in the car on the ride into town. And, uh, you know, to put that into perspective, if that had happened five years ago, not only would she have been in prison for, for however many months, her family would have been shamed and, and, and dragged in as well. And I probably would have been in trouble for daring to take the ride. Uh, it's just a small example of, of how the kingdom is starting to, to open up. In, in hotels now, you have these, uh, these empty little quarters, certainly in the five stars, they look like bar areas. Uh, that's because they are. They've been turned into bar areas. There is no alcohol yet because that decision hasn't been reached. But the preparations are taking place for, for alcohol to be sold publicly in Saudi Arabia. And, and these, are, these are just remarkable changes. For so many years, these have been the ultimate sins. But there and elsewhere, there is just a very different feeling. And Martin, you told me earlier that MBS was welcomed back into the fold in the West for reasons really of national interest. Basically, they decided that they needed Saudi Arabia more than it needed them. And that suggests that the commitment to human rights among countries like France and the US isn't as deep as they'd like us to think it is. But what message do you think MBS has taken from that? Well, I think the message that he has taken is exactly as you've outlined. And MBS's view was that a human rights-led foreign policy isn't tenable. And at the end of the day, countries act in their own national interests. Now, he's taking some comfort at the moment, great comfort, in his view of the world being recognised by America and others. Now, the, the Americans need him at the moment. They need help from him to decrease global oil prices. Biden did his fist bump with uh, MBS, who stared him down outside the royal court, and he walked away empty-handed. And so if that's the lesson he's drawn from it, what does it tell us about how constrained MBS might feel in the future when it comes to doing things that he knows are human rights abuses, are terrible things? I think he's feeling a sense of validation at the moment. And I don't think he's thinking that, you know, locking up dissenters or, or those who oppose him, whether they be members of his own family, industrialists, uh, the rural elite, the business elite, is that really going to bother him long term? I, I do think he would think twice about that, but I don't necessarily think it's going to be foremost in his considerations. We've been talking here mostly about MBS's relationship with the West, which made a big issue of Khashoggi's killing. But what about his relations with countries who don't care as much if you kill a journalist in an embassy? And I'm thinking of countries like Russia and China. Have they been able to build a stronger relationship with the crown prince while the rest of us have been looking the other direction? Oh, very much so. Now, both China and Russia have spent a lot of time in MBS's royal court. Even during the COVID years, China's message has been, we don't get involved in your domestic affairs. Uh, we, we act in our own interests. We, we have things we want to sell you. Or we'll buy a few things off you as well, but in particular oil. 
the Russians, what lessons do they have to offer on human rights? MBS knows that. So he has been looking to the Russians uh, in recent months. Uh, he hasn't said anything at all which has been condemnatory of, of Vladimir Putin when it comes to Ukraine. We're also living in a world where many countries are trying to transition away from oil. and That'll likely begin to happen at a faster pace over the next decades, precisely when MBS is in power. Do you think he has a plan for what happens when oil is no longer the most valuable commodity in the world? Yeah, he does have a plan for that, and that's certainly what Vision 2030 has been largely about. And the, the message that he hammers home domestically is that we cannot continue to get by on having all this black oil under the ground, which in 20 years' time will not be as valuable as it is now. We can make hay in the time being, but we need to transition, we need to repurpose our economy and society to deal on a global level because we are not fit for purpose now. And all of these uh, transformational changes domestically in in terms of removing inertia from ministries, uh, setting up Riyadh as a trade and investment and a financial hub, they remain ambitions, uh, you know, they, re- they remain very aspirational at this point, but they're, they're being made in full awareness of the challenges that are ahead. Coming up, once his dad passes away, are there any hurdles left to Prince Mohammed becoming king? Martin, is it now certain that MBS will be the one who oversees the future of Saudi Arabia? Like, is it absolutely certain that he will be the next king? There is nobody between MBS and the throne. He has successfully eliminated all rivals. He has a a small but very loyal group of supporters behind them. He has the support of the military. He will be the next king of Saudi Arabia, save for some life-threatening event to, to himself. But He's 36 years old. He's in robust physical health. And uh, yeah, he's, he's very much the man who will take the throne at some point in the near future. And finally, MBS's time as Crown Prince has been rocky to say the least. And one of his most prominent critics recently warned that when he becomes king, Crown Prince Mohammed is going to be remembered as an angel. What can we expect from the next phase of MBS, King Mohammed? Well, if we think Prince Mohammed has unfettered power now when he is king and isn't looking over his shoulder at anybody, we are quite likely to see a a person who feels even more emboldened to act perhaps impulsively, uh, instinctively, and not necessarily in the national interest. That said, one would hope that he has learnt some of these lessons, particularly over Khashoggi, which was setting aside the legal, the ethical, the moral atrocity that it clearly represented, Politically, it was an absolute disaster for him. So one would hope that he does feel a sense of restraint because of the, these events that have bruised him. But as Khaled al-Jabri said, uh, having a, a figure such as this being given such extraordinary power will keep the region and the world on guard for some time. MBS is somebody who does see himself as having a position in history, in the history of Saudi Arabia, of the Hejaz, of the region and of the world. He has said to 
his colleagues that why doesn't Saudi Arabia have its own pyramids? He's somebody who does think big because he wants a legacy. He sees Saudi Arabia as having this historical tradition, which is known around the world to be this austere, foreboding place. But now he wants to turn it into something which is a a driver of society, of culture uh, within the Middle East. Uh, now, these may well be perceived as being ambitions of a, of a despot, as, as somebody who has too much hubris to actually fully understand what his place in the world are. The next few years are going to test him. Does he have the, the character? Does he have the persona? Does he have the ability to back up these ambitions? And more importantly, can he contain that extraordinary sense of hubris and channel that in positive directions? Or is he going to be somebody that repeats consistently these uh, extreme mistakes of, uh, of, of a youthful tyrant in waiting, which is certainly what he was? Now, the world will be watching. That was Martin Chulov, The Guardian's Middle East correspondent. Thank you so much to him. You can follow his coverage at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Natalie Ktena, an exec by Sammy Kent. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Elizabeth Casson and Phil Maynard. Back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>